This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Hi, it's Al. Welcome to another episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. This one's called Who's the Boss? You know, film sets are really fascinating places to work. They definitely reflect the the nature of the people working on them, especially at the top. But who's really in charge of any set? Most sets are kind of like beehives. They look that way. They kind of feel that way, too. And while everyone thinks the director is Queen Bee, on the set itself, it's really the first assistant director who's running the joint. Now, they're not the boss. They work for the boss. If it's a feature film, the boss is the director. But if it's a TV show, the bosses are the writer-producers. The first works for them. The first is the person who's really responsible for getting every day's work done on time and on budget. That means when the shit hits the fan, the first person the shit's going to hit is the first. It's a hard job, and it requires a special kind of person. Like our friend Tony Adler, no relation to Gil. Now, as you'll hear, Tony and I go back a long, long way to the Vassar College Drama Department. Boy, do we have stories. Tony's had a long, amazing career. He's worked on some huge features, Ragtime, American Beauty. He's done TV series like Grace and Frankie, Heroes, Empire, and Halo. He's worked with pretty much everyone you've ever heard of. He's also learned how not to make a movie or a TV show or a miniseries. When you've done as much as Tony has, the odds are you're going to do a couple of stinkers. Want some great stories from the sets of movies and TV shows you love? Well, tune out the world for an hour and enjoy a little madness. Some of the best stories coming from any movie set happens on the set. And the first AD, like our good friend Tony, he knows them. So how did you get into this nasty business? Let's start off with what mistakes you made to get into this business. Well, now... I know a little bit about Tony because we go back a bit. You know, I know Tony from Vassar. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I don't. So I, I don't know if, if you knew that, Gil. I, didn't, I don't know if I knew that. I may have known it a long time ago, but I've you know, known with, Tony with age, longer, I forgot a lot. I've known Tony longer than I've known you. Wow. Uh, yes. Uh, so, Gil, if we do the math, we're, we're looking at like <laughs> 46 years. Holy mackerel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's true. 197. I got to Vassar in 1977. In, in and I got to Vassar in 1976. Yep. And, and I'm still uh, trying to get to Vassar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and Tony and I were both in the drama department. And so we were in the same wow. the same crowd in the drama department. We we worked on things together. We we were part of a production in the handball courts of uh, a production of T of T.S. Eliot's Sweeney Agonistes, directed by Neil Samuels. Wow. You've got a really good memory, Alan. It's a it's a sad, sad thing. <laughs> it is. And, and gonna, I'm going to be like Mrs. Habersham and just me and my fucking. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be great. So uh, what did, Tony, what did you do on that production? On on Sweeney Agonistes, yes. yeah, I was, Sweeney. I, you're finally talking about Sweeney Agonistes. It's unbelievable. Uh, I was the I was the lighting designer and set designer for Sweeney Agonistes at college. Um, Whose idea all, was it to put it in in, in the handball court? Who, whose idea was that? Uh, I think that came from one Jack Daniels driven evening between Neil Samuels and myself. <laughs> there you go. It was genius. It was so. 
it was so weird because the audience sat down in the court and we performed up in the little gallery where and so there wasn't much space to work in up in the gallery but uh it was really freaky looking because of the angle that the audience was watching us at and it's a strange it's a strange piece anyway it's 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 fragments so clearly this this didn't knock any sensibility into your head as it did in Allen's as well, because he went into the business, as did you. So what, uh, what, how did you get into being a first AD from that? Uh, well, when, I mean, you know, Alan and I were, as you said, part of the theater department. And, and I, you know, we, I think we both left college, I me mean, a year earlier than him, 1980, and he came out, <clears throat> Alan, 81. Um, but, but, you know, I think we all clearly came out of college with the idea that we were going to be great successes in the theater industry. And so I left college in the summer of 80. And, uh, you know, my father, I think I think, Gil, you and I had talked about this at one point. My father was head of the was president of the Writers Guild for many on the East Coast for many, many years. So I kind of grew up in in a house that was very familiar with filmmaking, TV reading scripts, reading sure. books. You know, I mean, big, we were a big reading household. Mm -hmm. um, and I came out of school with the idea that I was going to be a, a, a lighting and set designer on Broadway. That was where my head was going. That's what you were going to be when you grew up. <laughs> yeah. And I, I thought I was like, I was on my way. I mean, and I used to turn all the guys that were in, in, in the department with us who all wanted to be actors. And I said, forget it. I'm never going to be. I mean, I, I may be funny. I may be good. You may have laughed at my performances. Great. I'm not going to go through the tragedy of trying to get turned down every day, all the time as an actor. So I'm going to stay. Did you I ever go? Did you ever attempt one audition as an actor ever? <clears throat> nope, never did. Never, never bothered to do that because it didn't. Good for go, you. Having that kind of, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, my, my, Alan, you remember Joe Gardner and, Ooh. and, and mm -hmm. our old friend John Cantor, who is, you know, left us. But I mean, to go through that depression of like constantly getting rejected and having to pick yourself up off the ground, mm. I didn't want to do any of that. That never interested me. To Gil's question, how did I get started? Um, the summer that I graduated college, the summer of 1980, I left school when I when I we graduated. When I graduated, I got a job almost immediately working as a as a master electrician in an off 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 Broadway house, and I was working as a stagehand um, for another company called the Second Stage uh, Theater Company in New York. So I was working and doing things. And uh, my father, one day while I was staying in New York, um, called me up. They had they had gone to the country house for the summer, my parents. And he said, do you remember our old friend, the director, Milos Forman? And I said, yes, my father had known Milos for many years. Nice friend to have. And, and he said, Milos Forman is doing a movie called Ragtime. Um, hence the poster behind my where's my hand there it is yeah, that's yeah. that's the poster from ragtime and he said they're looking to hire people and i said i said pop you know honestly like i've got two jobs and i'm helping my friend do this rock and roll thing and blah blah he said look here's what you should do you should go down and say hi to him on the set they're building the set 
the sets on 11th Street between Avenue A and B. And it, it's they're magnificent. You should all you got to do is go down and say hi. That's it. And I said, OK, well, what the hell? I'll go down and say hello. So I called his assistant, made an appointment. One day I decided to take a walk down there and, and see them. And I uh, I will never I mean, it, it's it's as clear uh, in my head as it was the day that I did it. I turned the corner, I walked onto the set and I saw the first AD slash producer who is a wise old guy who was just amazing named Michael Hausman. I was just going to say, uh, yeah. Yeah, Gil, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you either know him or know of him. Yeah, oh yeah. Was stand, they, were, they, we were dr they were dressing hundreds of extras. They were fitting them on the street. There were several hundred guys rebuilding the front of the street. I mean, it was unbelievable what was going on. And I stood there and I said, I, I watched Hausman. This was a week before they started to shoot. I watched Hausman directing rehearsals and a whole bunch of things from a from an eight-foot stepladder. And I I I was absolutely, first of all, I was astonished by what was being built because I had never seen anything like that before. Sure, sure. And watching the way that he played sort of the maestro or uh, mm. conductor in the middle of everything, I, I, my brain went boom. And I said, I want to do that. <laughs> that looks cool to me and like a lot of fun. <laughs> and, and it's, and it's, and, and it really, I mean, I, I kid you not, that was, that was the seminal moment of me deciding to say to the theater jobs, um, I will get to them when I do, but I'm going to concentrate on being a PA and, mm -hmm. and, and figure out how I can get up that ladder. Um, and that's, that's really true. I mean, I, I kid you not, that is exactly how it happened for me. Did, so did, you, work on the show? did you work on that movie? I did. Hmm. I, I worked on it for months. And in fact, um, when I went up to, when I, I mean, we, my parents knew this guy Hausman for quite a while um, because he was a local in the neighborhood as were we. Hmm. And I walked up to him and, and, and I said hello to Milos Foreman who was yelling at, at some somebody in Czech, which was, you know, like, I don't know what he's yelling about. It turns out I found out later that he was yelling to some guy about having a date with one of the extras or something, I, something bizarre. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but I walked up to Hausman and, and Hausman said, I have, I have a job for you if you want it. And uh, I said, what's the job? And he said, you're going to paint um, rooms in that tenement building because we're going to turn them into dressing rooms for the actors. You're going to paint them, clean them, do all that stuff, and then we'll figure it out from there. And I said, how much does it pay? He said, 50 bucks a day. I, and and I said, you um, sign me up. Where do I, What do I have to do? <laughs> Point me in the right direction. Let me get my overalls. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll go borrow a pair of gloves from somebody. Did did, did working on a feature change the way that you saw filmed entertainment? Do you know what I mean? Did Yeah. Well, I, it, it gave I mean, I had been on sets before, you know, and I had I had been behind the scenes like um, my, for example, my father was the story editor on, on two, two TV shows in the sixties, which were very well known in New York. One of which was Burt Reynolds first starring show called the Hawk, hmm. um, where he played, uh, a, a native American Indian detective in New York. 
Aye, the casting. Aye. And that was followed by one of the great cop shows that was filmed in New York called NYPD uh, with Jack Warden, Frank Converse and Robert Hooks. And um, so I, I had seen it before. I had watched things being made, but never had I really been on the other side of the cameras part of the staff. Yes. So so it really changed everything from from then on every time. I've gone to the movies since my day one. Life has changed. Yeah. Like I, my my perception of it has changed. And actually, I think realistically, it's made my movie going experience, for lack of a better term, way better for me. Like I'll go watch fucking any. Excuse me, but I will go and watch anything. No, mm. doesn't matter what it is. I will go and sit there and 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 figure it out and go. This is gr-. like I I go watch cartoon movies, Shrek, The Minions. Like you could, I could go to a Minions movie if they turned them out once a week. I would go every week. I I mean I I I love them. So um yeah I I you know it really it really changed everything in, in that was spinning in my head that one day standing there um it's just profound. it it is it is profound okay so you found a home inside this business that you didn't expect to find yeah and you know what i'll tell you something else uh, alan you'll probably remember there was a there was a guy at, Va- at, at vassar who taught filmmaking stedman uh, and his name was ken ross oh, and, ken, oh ken ross yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, he, I took filmmaking my junior year and I, he and he and I did not get along. He was an experimental filmmaker. He was like, well, was the whole department. Yes. Stedman also who, who ran the department. It was all experimental. Here, point the camera at a cloud for four hours and see what happens. Like, I know what's going to happen. The cloud's going to go away and then it's going to come back. And that's that. So were I'm you, not. Were you always a drama major? See, I started a film major. I began as a film major, but the experimental stuff just wasn't that interesting to me. And I thought, eh, I'd rather be a drama major instead. You know, the, 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 yeah, the, the, the whole, I appreciate it in an esoteric sense, you know, the, you know, the, their kind of filmmaking, but I, I was more interested in narrative and telling stories. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, I think that the, you know, it, at that time when we went to school in the, in the late seventies, experimental filmmaking was exactly that like it, it was mm. let's see if we can if we turn the, the the 16 millimeter film around backwards and then we spill some orange juice on it maybe maybe something really cool will happen everyone and, wanted to be warhol yeah and 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 uh, i'm with you i mean for me that was like no sorry i i don't whatever you know so um but you know that having the good fortune and I've never, I never worked with him, but I, I know of Michael, and I think he knows of me. But we've never really worked together. Having mm-hmm. the good fortune of working with Michael and with Milos is really exceptional. I mean, and that's that yeah. that would set you on a course, at least in the right direction, having had experience with these right people who know what they're doing. Yeah, I will tell you if you guys don't mind, I'll share one other story about that movie with you, which was also mm-hmm. seminal and happened on that day that I went down there to visit them, which I went down there about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And it was about a 10 minute walk from my house. 
And um, I went, I met with Mike and I watched Milos jump up and down and yell and check and smoke his cigar at 11 o'clock in the morning and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but, um, and I hung around and, and Mike had, Mike Hausman had introduced me to a couple of people and whatever. And about 1.30 in the afternoon, there was a big hubbub. They were, they were fitting all the Hasidic Jews that were going to be on the set. So they were fitting them with payas and, and, the, and the hat and the you know, prayer shawls and the long coats and all things. So there was a big commotion at the other end of the street where, these guys were, where all these guys were being fitted. So I kind of wandered down there and to see what was going on. And all of a sudden... I, I saw this little hunched hunched over guy in a in a wearing a bowler hat and a dark coat, trailed by a nurse, and he had an oxygen. And I realized who it was. It was Jimmy Cagney. Oh wow. gosh, you know, yeah, he was really that was his last anything. That was his last movie, and he had come down to visit the set with his nurse and his keepers, and there were some paparazzi there, and they were taking things, and 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 I had grown up in my house with my parents being and like james cagney was a movie icon right we we watched yankee doodle dandy twice a year without i mean we would take the phone off the hook and watch the movie because my my mother would sing every single song yeah. to the, the yeah. tv so we watched you know I'm, I'm standing there watching like this this incredible persona that i grew up with and he's 80 years old. He looks terrible. He's got an oxygen tube in his nose. The, there's a nurse trailing him around. And, and I was just, I, I couldn't even go up to him. But in watching what was going on, he wandered up to the Hasidic, some of the extras who were being fitted as Hasidic Jews. Hmm. And James Cagney started to speak Yiddish. Wow. He started to speak Yiddish, these guys. And and my jaw dropped, and I I I was one of the guys turned around, and looked at him, and said, uh, "I'm sorry, Mr. Cagney, I don't speak Yiddish. Uh, I speak Spanish, but I don't speak Yiddish." <laughs> uh, and and I and he kind of shook his head, and then he sort of wandered off in the other direction. And I went away, and I thought about it, and I realized, you know, Jimmy Cagney had been raised on the Lower East Side. Yeah. And, and, you know, in the Irish in, neighborhood, well, but it was block by block on the Lower East yeah, Side. And was, so yeah. as a kid growing up at the turn of the century, you needed to know how to navigate sure. different neighborhoods and different things. So, so of course he would know how to speak Yiddish or, mm -hmm. or at least have a conversation. You know, I'm sure he could speak Italian and, 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 and German and something else. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Wow. And, and along along the way, did you did you ever have an experience or an opportunity to meet with Frank Danielle? Frank Danielle, no, the name rings a bell, but I don't. I Frank don't know. Danielle was was Milos's partner. They both came over from uh, Czechoslovakia together, and then when Milos became uh, head of uh, drama at Columbia University, uh -huh. he brought in Frank Danielle to run it. Oh, okay. I my father may have known Frank. I, I don't. I don't. I don't reckon, I mean, I, I don't have a name for all of that, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, wow. uh, so you, but you, 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 you stayed with it. So you, you, you suddenly got bitten by this thing and, and, and now you suddenly have a, 
a couple of you know uh, you, you're working on sets uh you worked on purple rose from Ky- of, of, of cairo mm-hmm. uh what was that set like well woody allen sets i did three woody allen movies i i worked on zelig i worked on the purple rose of cairo and i worked on broadway danny rose Right. Um, three very seminal Woody Allen movies from that time frame. Yeah, yeah. And um, didn't and didn't Michael work on those as well? Hausman? No, 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 okay. no. Michael. There was a guy named who somebody you might know, Gil. A guy named Michael Pizer. That's um, right. That's right. Yeah. Mike Pizer was like the the yeah. UPM line producer guy. Yeah. Um. There was another guy who also who else you might know, Bobby Greenhut, Robert Greenhut. Do you know yeah. Bobby? Yeah. So Bobby was like the guy. He yeah. was the main guy there. Um, and there were other names I could I can reel off. But um, uh, in in answer to Alan's question, this Woody the Woody sets of that day were very. Uh, they were they were very regulated around Woody's behavior and his patterns and Mia Farrow and what was going on with them. So you had to be really. Like there was, there was a specific way of, of, you know, working. So it was a little, it wasn't just like yuck, yuck, run around, yell and scream and jump up and down kind of thing. It was, never is. well, you know, there, there are, there's a lot of forgiveness, there, and especially back then in, the, in those days, there, there was a lot of forgiveness about shooting on the streets of New York where a lot of, you know, I mean, it, you know, you had to make a lot of noise and you had to move very fast in order to get, uh, in order to get things done. Yeah. But the the Woody sets were kind of like Marty Scorsese sets, which is they are very, they were very controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, Woody was only called to the set when he was absolutely needed to shoot. Otherwise the DP at the time, who was one of the great masters, Gordon Willis, mm-hmm. um, basically set up everything. Like, like when Woody would arrive on the set and go to his camper, mm-hmm. Gordon would go walk in for 10 minutes, come out and then do everything. And then Woody would come out just before we would shoot generally with Mia Farrow, if she was in the shot. Um, And then we would go and he would shoot a couple of times. He would go up and talk to the actors a little bit. And, uh, and, and that would be it. And, and when we would finish, he would go back to the trailer. Gordon would set up another shot and we would go on from there. Um, so it was, it was, and, and you were, you, it's pretty much pretty clear that nobody was really supposed to talk to Woody un, unless he talked to you or, or you know, it was the AD, a guy named Tom. Um, it, it, or, it's, a, it's a strange set when, when that's kind of the, it's. Yeah. Uh, but, but on the, on the, on the flip side of that, it was there was never any figuring out like how this was working. This was made clear pretty much. Don't yeah. talk to Woody unless he talks to you. Sure. You're, you know, we're going to do it like this. When he leaves the set, we have the set. When he comes on, everything is quiet. Boom, shoot. And he goes away. Masquerade is the first time that you are the second. Was that, was that, that your first, first one? Uh, no, there were, there were a couple of others before it, but it was the first bigger, film it was the summer of 85 or 86 with uh and rob lowe was the the biggest hot ticket in town um you know so he was in the movie and uh 
Um, it was, it was, a you know, it was, we shot in, in, uh, East Hampton and Amagansett and South Hampton. So for the summer. So how bad was that? Like, right. <laughs> certainly not. It was, it was outstanding. Um, I've, been looking, I've been looking for a job like that all my life. I know me too. In fact, I'm, I'm actually going to go and work, you know, stocking a seven 11 shelves in Southampton next summer. Um, <laughs> at, but, at, at, at this point, all right. So now you're, you're, you're working as a second. Did you see a, an absolute career path? Oh, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, from literally, as I said, from the day that I saw Hausman, Michael Hausman on that ladder, giving directions. Yeah. Yeah where i wanted to end up so being a second was 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 a path i mean i did did work as a second second assistant director and then i moved up to being a key second assistant and and life as an ad is always you know has been for me anyway in platforms like i was happy to be a second second and watch key seconds who had a lot of experience navigating between the you know um camper land where the you know motorhome base camp and the set and how they did that and i was very respectful of that and then what what made a great well okay what made a great key second um uh the ability to communicate uh the ability to make sure that they were the filter the ability to make sure that the communicate remember this is this is back in the 80s this is way before Everybody had computer. I mean, we had to send the call sheet to the office. When did you make the leap from second to first? Uh, 1992 or three. It was my, the last movie that I did as a second was a torturous disaster movie, disaster of a movie named Billy Bathgate. Oh. Um, and oh, yes, yes, yeah. Billy. Oh, gosh. Ugh. Yeah. That was that was it for me. When I finished that movie, I said, I, I'm going to have to just now only I, I, I have to make the jump. I, I can't I can't keep writing call sheets and spending half my day on a phone with people who don't understand. I need to be running the show. And that was when I decided 1992 or three. Um, I can't remember exactly what the date was, but um, but that was. Okay, and, you know, our, our, our podcast is called How Not to Make a Movie. So clearly you are saying that Billy Bathgate is an example of how not to make a movie. Do tell. Yeah. What 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 did they fuck up? The the movie, you know, that particular movie had had a, an incredible amount of personalities. And the personalities were very, very obvious. It wasn't like, you who, know, who some, some of the names. Who, it, it was so long ago. Um, so this is 20, 30 years ago, right? So Dustin Hoffman was the star. Nicole Kidman was, was, um, you know, a budding star. She was coming up. Uh, there was a young guy named Lauren Dean who was for cast for some reason. Why? I don't really, I I remember Lauren Dean. Um, but you know, we had a very, very complicated script that required a lot of stuff and um who wrote the script uh tom wolf uh tom wolf or tom stoppard i think it was tom stoppard excuse me Stop, uh, uh, <laughs> all right. so, so, a very literate script and uh, the captain was uh, again one of the greats i got lucky to work with nestor almendros unfortunately that was his last movie and he was beginning to go blind oh. so things took a little longer 
um, than they should have. But who but was the, directing? I'm sorry. Who was directing? Robert Benton. This was when um, Hoffman was really sort of at his acting peak. So he really, the whole movie was about Dustin Hoffman and and what he was doing and when he was doing and and it, it should have been because because of him they got the movie made um but you know it was one of those things where where uh we, you know we were working with disney at the time and disney was like you know when we handed in the first schedule we said this schedule it's it's you know 99 to 100 days of shooting we we're shooting in three states four cities in three states and moving the whole company back and forth and blah. And they freaked out. They were shooting Dick Tracy with Warren Beatty at the time. So they were kind of shell-shocked. Yeah. Uh, and, Whoa, and Double whammy. Whoa. Yeah. Jeez. And so cut to 112 days of principal photography later. <laughs> right? Seriously. that we, we wrapped principal photography after 112 days of shooting. Oh man! Uh, they we then went back three months later and and did another like sixteen or eighteen days of shooting, and then went back after that and did a couple of days of pickups. So I think I I, I think the the aggregate was like one hundred and fifty days of photography on the movie, and it's and, not a good movie. No, it's boring as hell, and and it came from a great novel, so it should have been really good, but. Oh, well, so um, that was how not to make a movie, truly. It, uh, it blew apart the relationship between Robert Benton and Dustin Hoffman, which was sad to see because it happened in front of everybody. They they ended up hating each other. Wow. And so I don't even know if they've ever reconciled. Well, yeah. hey, if there's any kind of, you know, Gil is, has never reconciled with, with Dennis Miller. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. No, so there's that. <laughs> so uh, all right, so so you made the leap to, to yeah. first. What what was what was your first time as first? Um, actually, it was doing some of the reshoots on Billy Bathgate, and um, huh. when when the production guy from Disney called me, he actually said to me, he actually said, "Listen, nobody else is available. Can you step in and do the do these?" <laughs> hey, whatever works. And I, and it was like, uh, yeah, you know. No, nothing like a slap on the back there, buddy. I appreciate that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, uh, but that's, that, that's true. Actually the first move, my first job um, as a, as a first AD was on a little tiny movie um, that David Hemmings directed up in his hometown of in um, Ketchum, Idaho. And I, I'm trying to remember the, it changed names a couple of times. Uh, I, th I want to, I think the name of it ended up being dark horse and um, it was like an 18 day shoot. And my, the guy who I seconded for on Billy Bathgate, one of the great classic first ADs of the 20th century and part of the 21st century, a guy named Brian cook, who was uh, Stanley Kubrick's AD for many, many years. Uh, one of the great classic shooting first ADs mm -hmm. called me up one day and he said, call me from London. And he said, my friend Hemmings is shooting this movie. Um, can you go and do it with him? Mm -hmm. And I said, mm -hmm. sure. And, you know, an hour later, Hemmings called me and we talked and like a week later I was on a plane and I went out there and we went and I went and shot it. And that was, that was the first job. 
How did and, you find how did you find working with, with, with David Hemmings? We we had an experience. He he did an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Uh, oh um we'll compare notes. I love the guy. He yeah. was he was smashed out of his mind yeah. all well, that's consistent. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Those notes line up. Uh, but I, I, I adored him. He was, he was, he couldn't, even though he was plastered all the time, and you could smell him from fifty feet away, which was too bad. And but I will tell you that you know, he, even though he was drunk, he was probably a better director than seventy-five percent of the people that I have worked with in my entire career. He just knew. He just knew what was right, what was wrong, um, where to go, where to put the camera, what to say to the actors, even if they had to like hold their hand in front of their nose because they couldn't stand his breath. Um, but he was he was great, and he was really great to me. I mean, he was it it you know had he done another movie as a director after that, I think we probably would have worked together again. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a great experience. I really, I mean, we worked our asses off. We basically worked seven days a week um you know i mean it was a small crew maybe 35 people or something like that and he was a gem to work with and and i i you know i enjoyed every single minute of it um among the the features that you first did was uh, american beauty yeah and and that that you came on to a little after it had started they, they were having trouble yeah a couple of days into it yes they what had happened was I was shooting a mini series with a, a director and a, and a couple of producers at the, uh, when they were prepping the movie. And I, the line producer called me and he, he wanted me to, to meet with Sam Mendes, uh, who is the director of American Beauty, who had never, he had never directed a movie before. The script written by, it was the first script ever written by Alan Ball. Alan Ball was a was a work for hire writer at the time. He was not the guy that wrote, you know, created Six Feet Under and right. Dexter, all these other things that he's done. So so here is this guy's this young English guy, Sam Mendes. He's got two big hits on Broadway that he's preparing uh, road companies for and flying back and forth between New York and L.A., like never sleeping. He was it was amazing. I mean, that this guy wasn't falling down. So. The line producer called me up and he said, come in and meet with Sam. So I did. And we spent two hours talking and we we talked mostly about theater and and actors and theater, not really about about the job as a first assistant director or any anything like that. But we we hit it off and and I left there and he called me on my cell phone and uh, afterwards. And he said, I you you're uh, I would really love to hire you. And I said, well, I, you know, I'm on this other project until this time. And um, it's rare that a director picks up the phone and makes those calls. Usually you get an assistant who, or the producer or somebody else, but it's rare that the director actually does that. Several weeks go by and I hear again, and it, Mendez calls me while I'm shooting. And he says, listen, I would love to hire you, but the studio is really pushing somebody else. And I said, look, um, uh, you know, I want to thank you for these phone calls. And I, I, you, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate them. But um, you shouldn't walk into that movie, your first movie in Hollywood, with a target on your back. And if the studio is pushing somebody, I, I, I think that you should fight for 
the people that you you desperately need creatively in your head, which turned out to be his production designer, his editor, and a cameraman named Conrad Hall, who was one of the great cinema, who won the Academy Award for American Beauty as well, uh, who was a genius, who helped make that movie what it was. And uh, I said, go fight for those guys. And if something works out between you and I, great. And thanks for the call. And you're a great guy. And I really appreciate it. So on it goes. I'm in the middle of things. A couple of months later, about six weeks, actually a month and a half, about six weeks later, I get a phone call from the line producer again. Are you available? Um, uh, are, you're shooting. Yes. Are you available to come? To, it was a Friday afternoon. Are you available Friday night to come to the set and meet with Sam and I and the studio and DreamWorks? And I said, sure. And uh, so I... I did, and I I went that evening, and they hid me in a camper to keep me away from everybody. Um, and I met with Sam and the guys from the studio, um, and they said we we're we're making a change, and and we would like to have you come aboard. And what do you need to come aboard with? And I told them, I said I need I, I need my team. I I'm not I can't. I, I need the people that I know that that will deliver the job as I describe it to them. And I got to work all weekend and for several weekends with Sam mm. to make sure I understand what it is that, that he, he needs and what it is he wants. Cause I literally am going to step from Friday night shooting something else into Monday morning, taking over the set with basically no knowledge. So and, and taking over the set being the operative words. Yeah. yeah. So, running, and running that set and, and really that. That is what the first does. <clears throat> that is what the first does. Yeah. And so I did. And and we made the deal and it was all fine. And we went forward and they 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 really did. They The DreamWorks guys were really great. I mean, they supported us and they supported the transition and everything else. Um, and it was it was really good. And 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 uh, it was a tough, tough show to shoot. Because Kevin Spacey, who you know played the lead, won the Oscar for, he he had uh, commitments. He had the, he had a he had a, a hard out date. So the original shooting schedule that they had approved that was we were supposed to you know adhere to was never going to happen. It was a forty. They gave us they gave the movie forty days, and it was never going to happen. And I, they gave me all this paperwork, and I called them up on Sunday night, and I said. I want to tell you something, guys. Uh, unless you start ripping pages out and and somebody comes in and tells the director that he can't do this or that or the other thing, which is not going to be me, um, you're not. We're not going to make this. We're not making a forty day schedule. Um, and we didn't. And we still got Kevin Spacey out in in plenty of time <laughs> for him to do his broad his uh, West End appearance in London. And then Sam Mendes took the movie back to London and, you know, cut it. And there you have it. You know, it's 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 really one of the great memorable films um, in the last 50 years. It really it's really an amazing piece of work. I actually went to go see a screening of uh, Empire of Light, the latest film that Mendes did uh, at the Directors Guild. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I got a chance to talk to him for about 10 minutes after the movie. It was great. I mean, I hadn't seen him in 20 years. Wow. And that was really cool. And it was really like he saw me walking down the aisle in the theater of uh, at the DGA and his yeah. 
It was really fun. I mean, his face lit up and he went, you haven't changed. And I said, you have, you're grayer than I remember. And he said, yes, and I'm fatter too. And I said, I'm fatter than you are. So don't, let's not go to that level. Let's do something else. So, and we're now we're, we're actually uh, um, writing each other. Right. Uh, hey, it's good to be back in touch with, with, with old friends. Yeah. And working with Sam was really great. Like that was, that was a tremendous experience for me because working with a theater director in the film, even though Sam had always been like a movie guy in his head, he'd never done a movie before. Sure. Oh, so, sure, sure, so, sure. oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So the, the, the conceptual difference is astonishing Yeah. from, from what he recognized was great. And, but what was really fantastic about that experience for me was watching him talk to Kevin and Annette Benning because, mm -hmm. and Chris Cooper, mm -hmm. um, because the, the communication about, about the work that they were doing, that these actors were putting up was amazing. I, I, I don't think I've ever really worked with a director who was that, like into the actors and what they were doing and all that. And Sam was absolutely there and he was, he was amazing. Would you say that, that because he came out of the theater? Yeah, very much. Well, you know, and also that movie was a great transition because in a lot of ways that was a play. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and so he was able to concentrate on character, I'm sure character relationship and emotion. Sure. Yeah. You can do that as a play. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. yeah. Um, and 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 you know there I mean I remember at one point we there was there was the the famous it's actually called it's called the couch scene where he's lying on a couch drinking a beer and she comes home and there's this whole big confrontation about you know, you know what's going on and, yeah, and yeah, end of the yeah. day, very romantic and she says don't Lester don't spill the beer on the couch and he flips out and he goes it's just a couch. It's yeah. a capital. So that we rehearsed the day that was like the fourth, third or fourth day that I had taken over the show. And that morning, Sam had come to me when we were scheduled to shoot that scene. And he said, just so you know, I'm going to rehearse this scene until it's ready to shoot. And I, I sort of swallowed for a minute and I went like, hmm. I think that's a red flag. Like I, I, I should be aware there, there's, there's a hidden message in all of that. Mm -hmm. So literally we closed the doors and he and the script supervisor walked into the set. Not me. I, I was outside four and a half hours later, literally four and a half hours later, the line producer is having a heart attack on the street. Sure. The crew is that they're playing they're kicking a football around and doing because there's nothing going on nobody's doing it. so four and a half hours after call sam opens the door and we bring everybody in the first thing he does is we turn all the furniture in the room around we re we move everything around to what he blocked with the actors mm -hmm. so that was and then and then he showed us what the scene was so we didn't shoot anything before lunch. We didn't even light anything before lunch. We had time. And and meanwhile, I mean, there are people who were pulling whatever hair they had left out of their heads in the in the trailers. 
So we lost we lost a good you know two thirds of a day that day. We, that was when we started falling behind, yeah. um, and uh, it happened. But but the scene in the movie is memorable. I remember being at the at the after party at the at the Directors Guild Awards when we won that night, and uh, uh, you know everybody was having a great time. Steven Spielberg was sitting with Sam. And I wandered over with my with my date at the time, and 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 we we, we talked for a little bit. And Spielberg said, uh, "You know, at the end of the day, I know you guys went way over budget and way over schedule, but at the end of the day, look at the movie. Look at look at the movie. Look how good that movie is. Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, I mean, was it worth it? At the end of the day, I've never worked for DreamWorks since." Um, I don't know if I don't know yeah. if my name edited over there, but I've never worked for them. Well, you know, so- you, you you could walk in the door and go, guys, but look at the movie. I know. What would you say, looking back, are was your are, are your happiest experiences doing a feature? Are are are, well, are there any? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, I I would actually I will tell you that I think that that my 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 favorite experiences in general have been shooting these big, I've done a number of big miniseries over the years, like really large scale miniseries in foreign countries and other places. You just did one a little while ago. Yeah. Those, those have really been like amazing for me. Like I went and did in, in, in uh, 2001, I was in New Zealand for seven months uh, doing a mini series over there, and it was one of the great experiences that I've had in my life. It was just fantastic. What was that? Uh, it was called the move. The thing itself was pretty shitty. Called Superfire, um, but but it's ex- called su- Superfire. Superfire. Yeah, it, it was a. It, there's a, a condition in forest fires where that that's that is actually called a superfire, which is when fires collide. And and the heat makes them explode and and become exponentially bigger, um, as we've had here in the West, of course. Yeah. So it was a, it was a movie about that. Unfortunately, the casting wasn't great. Um, the director was was okay, good guy, not very on it. Mm-hmm. Um, constantly got overwhelmed by the size and scope of what we were doing. Uh, but being in New Zealand and, and, you know, it was right after they had shot the, uh, the first Lord of the Rings. Hmm. So there are all of these amazing people that were available that have become superstars in the film industry everywhere. So we worked with an incredible crew, like an incredible crew of great people. And were and, you in Wellington? No, we were, we were in Auckland. Oh, yeah. We, we operated out of Auckland. It was it was just a spectacular experience. I mean, I had I had never been to that part of the world, and mm. and uh, I envy you. So. No, it was, it was phenomenal. I mean, I had an absolutely fantastic time. I mean, it was tough every day. There were challenges and all of that, like there always are. But at the end of the day, you know, the, all the people there 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 wasn't a bad egg or a bad sheep among them, um, and it was it was spectacular. I've also I spent uh, five months on Malta doing doing a version uh, for um, the USA Network of uh, the Helen of Troy story. Huh. Uh, 
And that was unbelievable. I mean, it was the, the, you don't, you don't have enough time on this podcast for me to go into the hundreds of crazy stories. We, we basically shot, you know, with people from 16 or 17 different countries. We shot for 68 days or 69 days or something. And, and it was absolutely massively crazy. I mean, and, but Again, like an experience like none other. Like living in Malta was for five months was unreal. No, I'll bet. I'll, I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah. And I got another, you know, a couple of years later, I went to Rome and I lived in Rome for five months and I shot a, uh, I shot a miniseries called, uh, it wasn't a miniseries, I'm sorry. It was a short order. It was a six episode short order, uh, something called Empire. Um which again, 44 BC Roman togas things right. stuff, um, and again the living experience over there. I I lived three blocks away from the Vatican. I was around the corner from the Vatican. You could always drop it on the Pope. Yeah, it's always exactly. convenient to be near the Vatican. Yeah, it was great. I mean, so so some of these experiences that I have had, even though they weren't big movies, they were big big tv things uh recently last year um not i'm sorry not 22 21 i was over i i got called and i went over to budapest and i i did the action and battle units for this show that's on the air now called halo mm -hmm. from the game. that was great amazing and budapest had always been sort of on my bucket list of a place that i wanted to go yeah. um and so i out of the blue one day this guy calls me and he says, I'm calling from from Halo in Budapest and we want to find out your availability. And it sounded exactly like a friend of mine in New York. And I thought it was a joke. And and I said, listen, Scott, stop, stop screwing around. Will you please? Because I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm I'm available and I'm interviewing and trying to get a job. And, and the guy said, uh, this isn't Scott. You know, th this is Hatsu from from Budapest. And we're calling to find out your can you speak with the director? And, the, and it's like, oh, this is a real job. Great. Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> so I went to Budapest for 10 weeks and shot the biggest things that I've ever shot from a stunt and special effects point of view that I have ever done in my life. Hmm. Um, and it was amazing. It was it was absolutely great. Um, so, you know, I've, I've had, I've had these experiences throughout my career that have just been amazing. I've, I've shot in 38 of the 50 States. Um, and, and it's really been, you know, it's really been pretty great. These days you, 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 you've turned more to producing as opposed to working for other people. You, uh, you, you're trying to be the man. As much as I love uh, first thing, which I do, I, and and I I would do it if I could work the way that I like to work all the time. Uh, I would work all the time, uh, but I can't, and it's it is difficult. I mean, I I've had that um, that horrible thing where I went once uh, a couple of years ago. I went and interviewed with a director who was about thirty four years old, and I we went in and I sat down. We had a cup of coffee and it was a nice talk. And about an hour into the interview, you know, it was pretty clear that the interview was over, but we really connected. And the guy said, listen, I have to tell you, um, I think you're really fantastic and your experience speaks for itself, but I just don't, 
think that I can hire you. I, you know, and I said, oh, that's interesting. And I said, what what do you think is the problem? And he said, well, I think I would probably feel like I was answering to my father. And and I kind of took a step back and said, well, I get it. I, you know, and if it doesn't if it doesn't work for you, I, I you know, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not going to beg you for a job. I'm not, uh, you know, and I don't want to make you uncomfortable. So if you need somebody who's your age or, you know, somewhere that somebody that doesn't you, remind you of your dad in some fashion where, yeah, you think you're going to be deferring the whole time. You can't really fight that. There's nothing you can say if, if somebody's if somebody challenged me on my resume or my abilities as an AD that had nothing to do with age or anything else. That'd be one thing. I, then then I feel that I could sit there and go, well, let me explain how and why and all of that. But if somebody says, hey, you know, I, I'd rather work with somebody my own age. I, I, you know, I don't know what to at that point you go, well, good luck. And, and I hope you I, I wish you all the success in the world. You, you, you can only help people so much. You asked me at the very beginning of this sort of what makes a great assistant director. Well, my job is to make the director's life every day with the actors and the cameraman as easy as possible. That's my and and if nobody ever said thank you at the end of the day, that would be OK. If I if I if I deliver what I say I can deliver with the, with the tools that they give me and accomplish the day in the right amount of time and everybody walks away going we did a great day's work thank that's fantastic and they don't come up to me personally and say thank you for organizing this that's okay i i can live with that you know i that's not a problem uh, my job it my my description in of my job in my head is to to allow the director um the creative head of the of the team to be able to do his or her job and get the best performance for the actors and have the actors be incredibly comfortable and continue on from there. Um, yeah. as, as creative as my job can be, depending on trying to figure out problems or scenarios or situations, mm -hmm. the driving force of my job is logistics and delivering that on a, on a daily basis mm -hmm. and being able to deliver what I say that I think we can and also being very transparent. And, and there's a lot of people out there that aren't, and I'm not one of those people. But, you know, I think that candor is the reason why people trust you. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. I, I, you know, there, there, and Gil, you, you know, this from dealing with studio guys, you know, all your life and stuff like that. There's a lot of people who have a really hard time with that. They don't, yeah, I know. They, they don't want to hear that. They, they just want to see you say, yep, yes. absolutely. Okay. Got it. Thank you very much. And you off you go. And then the cost reports come in or the hot costs or the production reports and you're falling behind and you're not making your days and, you're in the 14 and a half hour days and somebody got hurt and all of and and they're going well how come why why did that happen and, the, and you get to say hey i hate to say i told you so but i told you we couldn't finish this in 3 days right. we needed 5 i said that and and here are the notes to prove it and you said no just right. like i mean i again i go back uh, i'll go back to what i said before about billy bathgate we told them it was 99 or 100 days um, and, and they said, absolutely no fucking way will you ever get that from Disney. 
So literally, you how many know, days did they get in the end? <laughs> almost 150. But but the day that we went to day 90 of 75, I remember calling the guys at Disney. I was again, I was a second AD, and I'm filling out all these all this paperwork. And I, I said, do you want me to stop calling it days <laughs> or 90 of 75? Can I forget that topic on the thing? Because it looks kind of stupid, don't you think? You know, I mean, I'll do whatever you want. You you guys make the call. Tell me what you want me to do. Oh, well, you know, yeah. Okay, get it rid of it. It could be a negative number. That's <laughs> like, okay, we told, you know, we, we this is what we said to you a long time ago, and you didn't want to hear about it, so... And nobody addressed the problem. So, okay. So now there's no longer day X out of X on the call sheet. Okay, great. So. How not to make a movie. Exactly. <laughs> See you next time. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, by Gil Adler, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal the Crypt Keeper would have called terrific Crypt content.